me take just a, a moment at the beginning of our time together today and review with you just very briefly uh, what it is that we have learned in the last month as we've been studying through the book of Genesis. Today's week number five, we're going to finish up this series um, last week. We're going to finish up next week, not last week. Uh, but uh, I want to take just a minute and review with you what we learned last week and in the three weeks previous to that. Uh, you will recall from all the way back in Genesis chapter number one that we affirmed the creation of the universe by the power of God. What we learned is that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days. At the beginning, as Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And part of that creation was the creation of man. God made us. He created man, and then he created woman, Adam and Eve. And we learned that every person has been created in the image of God, imago Dei. We all are made in the image of God. You've never locked eyes with a person who was not made in the image of God. And because of that, every person has intrinsic value. We do not produce or create our own value we are valuable by the fact of our creation in the image of God. We also, though, were very honest to say that the image of God that's within all of us has been marred within all of us because all of us bear the nature of sin. This has been passed down, as you know, from Adam, our, our first father. That sin nature that Adam uh, possessed when he fell into sin was passed on down to us. And so while we are made in the image of God, that image of God has been uh, messed up, turned on its head. It, it has been marred within us. And as a result of that, because we are uh, fallen people, every person made in the image of God, but every person has a natural rebellion toward God. And you see this in varying ways in every single life. But every person has this natural rebellion. Genesis 6 tells us that the rebellion of man became so bad and so widespread that God judged mankind and the earth with a global flood. This was in the days of Noah. This global flood came and the Bible says that uh, all that were on the earth, uh, all in whose nostrils were the breath of life, they all perished, except for eight, Noah his wife, their three sons, and their wives. And it was from the ark following the flood that they emerged to begin uh, literally a new world. The nations of the earth all were formed from this one family of Noah. And that, that, uh, uh, the, the birth of the nations happened, as we learned in Genesis chapter 11, when God confused their languages and they began to spread out all over the face of the earth. And as they fanned out, covering the earth, we came to Genesis 12 and we learned that God chose one man, one family, Abraham, and his descendants, which would become the nation of Israel, one nation God chose to rescue all the other nations. And we began talking about this just last week, and it brings us to where we are today, where that we learned that Abraham's miraculous son, the son born in his old age, Isaac uh, would be the beginning, the origin, if you will, 
of the one that would bring about salvation. Let me read to you what we, what we read last week. You don't have to turn. You're in Genesis 22. But let me just remind you from Genesis 12, last week in verse number 2, where God said to Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and your name will be great and you shall be a blessing. So what you have in Genesis 12 is the Abrahamic covenant. And in verse number two, God gives to Abraham this promise that you're going to have a son. Now, do you remember the difficulty with Abraham and his wife, Sarah, having children when God gives this promise? Couple of problems. Number one, Abraham is 75 years old at the time the promise comes and his wife, uh, Sarah, is 65. So well beyond childbearing years, plus the fact she has been unable to conceive in all of the years of their marriage, even when she was much younger. And so the Bible says that Sarah was barren and could have no children. But God made a promise. The promise was you are going to have many descendants. And just to put a fine point on the fact that this is by the power of God, the Lord waited 25 more years to fulfill the promise. And that son that was promised in Genesis chapter 12 was not born until Genesis chapter number 21, when Abraham is in fact 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. Will you look at it? You're in chapter 22. Go back one page. Look at uh, chapter number 21, Genesis 21 and verse number 1. It says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Can I just stop right there and affirm one thing with you? God always keeps his word. Amen? Every single time God did what he said he would do. It may have been 25 years after he said it. It may have been far beyond the, the realm of possibility. But no matter, God always keeps his word. Verse 2, for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of the son, the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare, he called his name Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac being eight days old as God had commanded him. And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. And because of the joy that came with the birth of Isaac, they named him uh, Isaac because that is what the name uh, Isaac means. The word Isaac or the name Isaac means laughter or it means joy. Can you imagine Sarah? You know, when the Lord said she was going to have a baby, she didn't believe it in the beginning. She laughed at the whole idea of having a baby. But then when she has this baby, can you imagine Sarah holding this baby and just, just guffawing, just laughing, how hilariously she must have laughed at the fact that God had in fact performed this incredible, incredible miracle that she was able to have a child. What joy Isaac brought into their home. By the way, every child brings joy into a home, don't they? Children are a blessing from the Lord. And I know that you know that. Now, they don't always feel like a blessing. Can I get a witness from a parent in the room? I mean, it's, it's, sometimes you have to believe by faith that they're a blessing. But children are a blessing from the Lord. And their, their mere presence, we recognize that they are a gift from God. 
And I, I have no doubt that, that Abraham and Sarah, this 100-year-old man and his 75-year-old wife, now granted they live longer than we do now, but, but this old couple having this baby must have been so filled with joy, uh, just the same kind of joy that all new parents have. But they also had the joy of experiencing the faithfulness of God. After all of these years, these 25 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promise that they would have this son, waiting for God to, to keep his word, suddenly they're holding in their hands the, the reality of what God had promised all of those years ago. Have you ever, have you ever had that moment where, where you had this confidence that God was going to do something for you and, and it, it took years for it to be accomplished, but when it did, you were like, Lord, thank you that you are faithful, that, that you follow through with what you've said. I know they had the joy of experiencing God's faithfulness, that God had kept his word. They had the joy of knowing that there was hope for the future because they understood the Abrahamic covenant and that God was going to bless the whole world through their son. And that blessing could not come and the whole world could not be blessed until God kept his word. So there was the hope for a future, knowing that Isaac would be the one through whom God would send that rescue, that Messiah to the world. In fact, I want you to write this down somewhere, if you will. This is really, really the fact. I want you to know it and never forget it, that Isaac, this little baby that they held, Isaac was the Messiah seed. I don't know a better way to say it. If the fruit of the Messiah would one day grow in the world, if the Messiah would one day spring forth in the earth, then the seed of that Messiah was the birth of little Isaac. There, we ended last week by saying there could never have been a Messiah. There could never have been a Jesus without an Israel. There could never have been an Israel without a Jacob. And there couldn't have been a Jacob without an Isaac. Isaac truly was the seed of the Messiah. You know this word, don't you? Messiah. It's not a word we use a whole lot. It's a church word. It's a Bible word. It's not a word we use a whole lot in our everyday language. The word Messiah uh, in the Hebrew is the word Mashiach. Um, that's the way you'd say it. I, when we travel to Israel, we hear this word a lot, Mashiach. Y'all want to learn some Hebrew? Would you say, can you, you want to say this with me? Can you do this? Everybody say ma, M-A, ma, say ma, ma, and she, and ach. You did that really good. I was expecting ach. It's not ach, it's ach. Mashiach. All right, let's say it together. Mashiach. Yeah, that's the word. That's the Hebrew word for Messiah. And the word is found throughout the Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the word is found 39 different times. 32 of those times, it's not translated uh, Messiah. It's translated the anointed one. Only two times in the Old Testament is the word uh, translated Messiah. But it means the same thing. Here's the definition. The word Messiah means the anointed one. Or he who will deliver, the one who is anointed to deliver us. That's what the word Messiah means. The one who will rescue us. And the word is found, the translated word Messiah is found in the Old Testament book of Daniel two times. Let me read it to you. You don't have to turn. Let me just read it quickly. I'm, I'm going to read from Daniel 9, verse number 25. 
Well, the Bible says, know uh, therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah, and then he's called this Messiah the Prince, shall be seven weeks and, and 62 weeks. Don't worry about the, the time or the dates. Listen to verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. The, the only two times in the Old Testament where the word Messiah is used is in Daniel 9. And in that passage, he's called Messiah the Prince. And we are told that the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, clearly, these are both references to Jesus. Do you see that? They're, they're obviously references to Jesus. Messiah the Prince. The, the Prince being the, the King of Heaven, the, the King of the Jews, the Son of God. Jesus the Prince. And verse 26 says, the Messiah shall be cut off. It means to be uh, killed suddenly. Jesus was crucified. He was cut off. But not for himself, Daniel 9 says. He will be cut off for others. Jesus the Prince was crucified or cut off for the sins of the whole world. Now, I'm taking the time to make that point because I want you to see that when the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah, it is clearly speaking of Jesus. And in fact, the New Testament uh, records the, the word Messiah uh, twice as well. And these two references are both found in the book of John. Let me just read one of them to you uh, in the Gospel of John chapter number 1 and verse number 41. Listen to this verse. Speaking of Andrew, it says he found his own brother Simon and said unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So Andrew says, says I found the Messiah and, and, and Peter, you know, what the Messiah, you know what that means when I say I found the Messiah. I have found the Christ. What John 1.41 teaches us is that the word Messiah and the word Christ are interchangeable. They mean the same thing. The Greek word Christos, from which we get the English Christ, is the same word as the Hebrew Mashiach. So when you say Jesus Christ, everybody say that out loud, Jesus Christ, when you say Jesus Christ, it's simply another way to say, it's a non-Hebrew way to say, Yeshua Mashiach, or Jesus the Messiah. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. Now the word Messiah may be only used in the New Testament twice, but the word Christ is used in the New Testament over 600 times, every single time referring to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah. And if you doubt that connection, you simply need to look only to the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 4. Listen to these words, verses 25 and 26. The woman said unto him, I know, this is the woman at the well in Samaria encountering Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. When he is come, so you see how she ties Messiah and Christ together? I know that Messiah is coming, he's the Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Are you all with me? You understand? Jesus said, I, I'm the one. She said, I know the Messiah is coming, he's going to be the Christ. The words mean the same thing. And Jesus said, I 
am he. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Messiah of the Jewish people, the, the Christ of the world, the one who was anointed by God to rescue all of us, the one that God would send to be the one through whom the promise of Abraham would be fulfilled, that the whole world would be blessed. And the origin of all of that rescue, the origin of this Mashiach, the origin of the Christ, is in fact this baby born in Genesis chapter number 21, whose name is Isaac. Now, Isaac uh, is the origin of the Messiah, not only in terms of his genealogy, but also uh, in terms of being a beautiful foreshadowing or a type of Jesus. We see in Isaac uh, the life of Jesus. And I want us to see that today. Uh, Genesis chapter number 22, you have your Bibles open there. Let's, let's uh, read together. You follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 22 and verse number 1. If y'all are still with me, say amen. amen. Do you wonder if I was going to get to a text today or not? I have to tell you this morning, Tracy and I were driving in. She, we don't usually ride together to church uh, because we have to get here at separate times, but we, she needed to be here early today. So I was driving her in and on the way to church, she said, tell me about the message. So I started telling her about it and telling her about it and telling her about it. And we got about halfway here. I'm still telling her about it. And she said, so are we, are we packing a lunch today? <laughs> I, I, uh, I said, uh, well, no, I'm not going to tell you what I said. Anyway, let's read the passage here. <laughs> we, will, we will finish on time. Genesis 22 and verse number one. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, behold, here I am. And God said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He claved the wood for the burnt offering and he rose up and went unto the place which God had told him of. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, his servants, abide here with the donkeys, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went, both of them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, and he laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son. And he laid him, Isaac, upon the altar, upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife 
to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he stopped. He said, here am I. And the angel said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And all God's people said, wow, wow. Can you imagine this long night? Can you imagine Abraham, the night, as he's laying in bed, having heard this directive from God, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go into the place that I will show you and offer him there as a burnt offering to me. Can you imagine as he lay in bed that night considering the unimaginable command that he had received from God, the absolute, absolutely unbearable instruction that he had been given? He dare not tell Sarah, because I promise you, Mama Bear would have come out. We're not sacrificing my boy. So I'm convinced he didn't tell Sarah, of course. In fact, the Jewish rabbis will tell you that after Isaac and Abraham departed the next morning, it was only then, now this is not in Scripture, this is tradition, that it was only then that Sarah figured out or learned this errand that Abraham had gone on with Isaac and that she in fact died, that that was when Rebecca, or that when Sarah died rather um, because she was concerned and thought that Isaac would surely be killed on that day. I can't imagine how he must have lay there staring at the ceiling that night. It had to have seemed absolutely incomprehensible, not only because of the barbaric nature. I mentioned to you at the close of last week what this meant. We, we don't really understand burnt offerings. It was a horrific process, what he was being commanded to do to his son. So when you consider the, the barbarism that is being instructed, but then the fact that to do this, to take Isaac, who is the seed of the Messiah, the one in whom all of the promises of the covenant rest, Everything that God said he would do was tied to the life of Isaac. And for Isaac to die is to take all of those promises and to throw them out the window. They could never come to pass if Isaac didn't come walking off of that mountain that day. He had to have been thinking, what? What's happened? Have I made God angry? Have I done something wrong? Has God changed our deal? Has God has God decided not to keep his promise? Is God changing his mind? And yet he knew God well enough to know that God doesn't change his mind and that God always keeps his promises. But he also knew that God had given him this clear command. Now, by the time you come to the end of the account in Genesis chapter 22, you can see the wisdom of God in the faith test that was being applied in Abraham's life Heart-wrenching as it was, it does demonstrate God's wisdom, but in the beginning of the chapter, so often you just don't know what God is doing. By the way, this is what happens in our lives sometimes as well, isn't it? That when some process begins, we begin to walk through some valley, we, we sense God leading us in some direction, and we just move by faith, and it seems like it makes no sense. And in the beginning, you just have to walk by faith and trust, and it's not until you get to the backside of it that you recognize that God, in fact, knows exactly what he's doing. 
and that he never makes any mistakes. But in the near sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, what you clearly see is the life of Jesus Christ. And this is really where I want us to focus our attention for our remaining time today is how do we see in this origin of the Messiah, this this seed of the Messiah in Isaac, how do we see the person of Jesus? And we we do see it in Genesis 22, but before we talk about that, that part of it, I want you to write this down. We're gonna begin by talking about another way in which we see Jesus in the life of Isaac. Write it down this way. Isaac is like Jesus in the selection of his bride. And I'm going to ask you to turn one page. We're going, to, we're going to consider another passage briefly in Genesis 24. Genesis chapter number 24 is where we learn about the bride of Isaac. And in the selection of Isaac's bride, you clearly can see a foreshadowing of Jesus. By the way, you do know, don't you, that Jesus has a bride. If you know that, would you say amen? You know who his bride is? It's us, right? We are, the church is, not just us, but all Christians all over the world, the church is the bride of Christ. The Bible says this over and over again. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the, how that Christ is, is bound to his bride, the church. Um, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says, I have wed you, speaking to those believers in Corinth, I have wed you to Christ. Revelation 19 says the bride of Christ, that's the church, has made herself ready. Christ has received a bride. And this is pictured so beautifully in uh, Isaac's receiving of his bride as well. Let me walk you through it. We'll just kind of do this quickly, but I think it's worth seeing. Uh, Genesis chapter 24 and verse number 1 says, And Abraham, now this is obviously years past the, the uh, near sacrifice that we just read about. So years later, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant, whose name we know as Eliezer, by the way, he said unto his eldest servant uh, that ruled over his house, skip down to verse number four, I want you to go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, here's the command. Abraham says to Eliezer, I want you to leave Canaan where we're living. I want you to go back up into modern day Syria or Iraq in that region, Mesopotamia. Go back to my homeland and I want you to go find a bride for my son Isaac. So that's the command. Eliezer is sent out on this mission. Verse number 10 tells us that Eliezer took 10 camels of the camels of his master and he departed for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went into Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. So he goes to look for uh, a bride for Isaac. Now I won't read the entire chapter for you. You can read it later. Essentially what happens in chapter 24 is he arrives at a well in this city. The women come out to draw water. He asks God to give him direction. Which of these beautiful women would you want to be the bride of Isaac? God arranges and works it out so that he knows which one. And he ends up sitting in her home that evening with her family to tell them why he has come. Let's read about that in verse 33. Chapter 24, verse 33. There was set meat or a meal before Eliezer to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have told you my errand. And so uh, Rebekah's father uh, says, speak on. 
And so he says, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, very wealthy, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camels and donkeys. Now, uh, if you have men servants and maid servants and camels and donkeys and flocks and herds and silver and gold, you are a wealthy and uh, a rich person, right? But notice where all those blessings came from. Verse 35, the Lord has blessed my master greatly. Can I just say a word to you? It has nothing to do with Rebecca and Isaac particularly, but I want you to know today as you leave here, everything you have is a good gift from your good father. Be it a little, be it a lot. In fact, based on the world's standards, everybody in this room has a lot based on most, most of the world. And everything that we have is a good gift from our God. Well, he says that God has blessed my master, verse 36, and Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when he was old. And unto him hath he given all that he has. Abraham has given to Isaac all of his wealth. Verse 37, and my master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife to my son of the daughters of Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go unto my father's house and to my kindred, and you shall take a wife for my son. So now it begins to become clear. Having met Rebecca down by the well, he now is seated in her home with her family. He's saying, I have a wealthy master. He has given all of his wealth to his son. His son is looking for a bride, or he's looking for a bride for his son, and I've come looking for a bride. And all got eyes go to Rebecca. And now, if you'll look at chapter 24 and verse number 58, verse 58 says, And they called Rebecca and said unto her, Will you go with this man? So here's the request. Here's the invitation. Rebecca, would you like to go back to Canaan land, to the, to the land of Canaan? Would you like to marry wealthy Isaac, whom you've never met? But Eliezer's telling her how, how wonderful Isaac is. If it had cell phone, he'd have been showing him pictures, showing her pictures. Telling her how wonderful it is there, how wealthy Abraham is, how wonderful Isaac is, uh, what a fine man he is, how, how much wealth he has. He says, would you like to go and become the wife of this fine man, Isaac? Verse 58, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Everybody say those words with me. I will go. Verse number 61, and so Rebecca arose and her damsels and they rode upon camels, and they followed this man, Eliezer. The servant then took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well of Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in a field in the evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, what man is this? Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, that is my master, that is Isaac. Therefore she took a veil and she covered herself. And by the end of chapter 24, she is becoming his wife. Now if you're all with me, say amen. amen. Here's what I want you to know. That in this beautiful uh, image, this beautiful story of this betrothal, this invitation to be married to this man that she's never met, you have this wonderful foreshadowing of how Christ would come and a bride would be chosen for Christ. 
They say, Pastor, what is the, what's the picture? What's the, what's the symbolism or the imagery there? How, how do I see the picture? Well, here's, what you need to, here's how you need to see it. Abraham, all the way back in chapter 24, verse 1, Abraham is this picture of God, God the Father. And he has a son, Isaac, who is a picture of Jesus, the Son of God. It's the desire of the Father that the Son would have a bride. And so the Father says to Eliezer, who is a type of the Holy Spirit, I want you to go into the world and I want you to find a bride for my, husband, for my son. And so Eliezer sets out on his journey into the world. He prays that the Father will bring to him the one that he wants to be the bride. The Spirit of God does that very thing. The Spirit of God is at work in the world, on mission from God to select and call a bride for Christ. Rebecca comes, she meets Eliezer, he, he ends up in her father's home, and the invitation is made. As he, as he talks about Abraham and all of his wealth and glory, as Eliezer talks about Isaac and all of his wealth and glory, he's doing exactly what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit tells us of the glory of Jesus. You know why people come to faith in Christ? They come to faith in Christ because they believe in the superiority, in the, in the, in the beauty, in the wonder, in the glory of Jesus. They recognize their own fallenness and the glory of Jesus. How do they know that? They know it because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He tells us about Christ. Well, then the invitation is made to Rebecca. Will you go with this man? Do you want to go and be married to Isaac? And she says, I would love to. I will go. Now let me put this in a very personal scenario for you. I so remember the night when I heard about the glory of God and the glory of his son Jesus. Eliezer, the Holy Spirit, came to Rebecca, a 16-year-old boy, and began to tell me how broken I was, but how glorious Jesus is. And I believed the story of the Holy Spirit. And by the end of that night, the Holy Spirit said to me, do you want to go? Would you like to become part of the bride of Christ? Will you trust in Jesus? And I said, I will go. Yes, I will. I'll receive Christ. And I trusted Jesus that night. And that night, the Bible says in chapter number 24 that, that Rebecca got upon a camel and began to follow Eliezer all the way back to the land of Canaan. Well, the night that I came to faith in Jesus, I began to follow, to walk with the Holy Spirit. He accompanies me through this world. And one day, like Rebecca, arriving where Isaac lived, one day you and I will get to heaven and we will be introduced to Jesus. We'll see him face to face for the very first time. The picture of the bride of Christ being selected by the bride, Rebecca, being selected for Isaac is a beautiful illustration in which you see Christ in Isaac. If y'all with me, say amen. The bride of, Rebecca, or the bride of Isaac, Rebecca, is a beautiful representation of the bride of Christ, the church. Well, then not only do you see Christ in the selection of Isaac's bride, but back to our text in chapter number 22, you see Christ in, or you see Jesus uh, in Isaac in this. Isaac is like Jesus in his relationship to his father. Isaac is like Jesus in his relationship 
to his father. That is that they went on a, they went on a journey together in chapter number 22. By the way, you know, this is not unusual. Teenage boys and, and teenage girls as well, to be sure, and their fathers go on hikes, go on journeys all the time, right? You've done that. Many of you have with your sons or even with your daughters. When Evan, our son, uh, who's now 30 uh, or 29, uh, but when he was a teenager, when he graduated uh, from high school, we made a couple of trips out to Yellowstone National Park. And so we went out just to hike and to be in the back country and to camp together. And, and uh, when we were there, uh, on one of the trips, we took this picture. I took this picture of Evan. And um, uh, it, was a, it was a special moment. Now, what you don't see in that picture is, um, I'll just be really honest with you here, I took the picture while he was waiting on me to stop being sick with altitude sickness. <laughs> we, we were at about, about 10,000 feet in elevation, and, um, and I was hurling over there in the woods somewhere. And uh, I saw him sitting in that beautiful backdrop in front of him, and I, thought, I, I, I just kind of leaned over and took the picture just before I was, thought I was going to die. <laughs> so there's a backstory to the glory of that. But anyway, this is what, what fathers and sons do, right? We, we, we make a journey like this. Many of you have done the same thing. And yet this journey, Genesis chapter 22, this journey that Abraham and Isaac went on was very different from any journey that all of us, any of us have ever taken. Let me get you to write down several things and we're going to be done. Number one, you see uh, the special nature, the incredible nature of this journey in the fact that the mountain that they climbed was not a mountain in Yellowstone, but it was Mount Calvary. The mountain that Abraham and Isaac climbed together was Mount Calvary. I'm in chapter 22 and verse number two, where God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, get thee into the land of Moriah. So we know that he went to the mountain in Moriah, and we know that, that the, that the, the uh, tallest mountain in, in Moriah is in fact Mount Moriah or Mount Calvary. It really is the same mountain. The Bible tells us that they went to Moriah and they climbed up this valley together, up this mountainside together. Now from the, from the direction they would have been coming, from the south, climbing up Mount Moriah, it's a steep, steep climb. And I can see Abraham and Isaac trudging up that mountain, sweat pouring Tears flowing as Abraham knew what he was going there to do. Abraham and his son. Did you see that, by the way, as we read the text earlier, verse number six, I circled it in my Bible, verse number eight as well, both those verses say, and so they went, both of them together. Abraham and Isaac, father and son, going on a, on a, on a hike up a mountain to accomplish a holy task. When we get here, we're going to make an offering. And Abraham weeping because he knows who that offering will be. As far as he knows, Isaac is going to die when they reach the summit of the mountain. They're going together, Abraham weeping. And a thousand years later, Jesus would walk that same path. Jesus would climb that same mountain and his father weeping along with him. The mountain they climbed was Mount Calvary. Secondly, in this journey... A father was sacrificing his only son. Here's how you see Jesus in the life of Isaac in this moment. A father is going to sacrifice his only son. Verse 2, 3, 4, 5 tells us that God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, 
whom you love and sacrifice him there for me. It's a clear foreshadowing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an obvious foreshadowing of the day when God would take his own son. More than once, the Bible tells us during the life of Jesus that God spoke from heaven. God opened the heavens. How rare is this that God speaks audibly from heaven? But the Bible tells us that more than once in the life of Jesus, he did it when he said these words, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God would take his own son, mirrored by, foreshadowed by, typified by Abraham taking Isaac, but God would take his son and sacrifice him on this mountain. The third thing that you see in this passage of chapter number 22 is that Isaac was carrying the wood for the sacrifice. We see Jesus in Isaac in this way. Look at verse number six. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. Isaac's trudging up this mountain, sweating and climbing up the side of Mount Moriah, and he has on his back the rough timbers that will form the the fire, the wood for the fire for the offering. But you have Isaac climbing Mount Calvary, carrying the wood upon which a sacrifice will be made. We don't have to look very hard, do we, to see the imagery of Jesus in that. John chapter number 19 tells us that Jesus came bearing his cross to Calvary. In the same way that Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice, Christ carried the wood, the cross, for his own sacrifice. Another way that you see Isaac, or you see Jesus in the life of Isaac, the experience of Isaac, is that Isaac was utterly submissive to his father's will. Now, we don't know exactly how Isaac was, uh, how old Isaac was when this occurred. Here's what we do know. We do know that he wasn't a boy. He wasn't a child of three or four or ten. He was, in all likelihood, a full adult, certainly a teenager, but in all likelihood, 20 years old or older. And notice what the text says. They climb up this mountain. He, said, he asked the question, where's the sacrifice for the burnt offering? God will provide, Abraham says in verse number eight, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Verse nine, they come to the place God shows him. Abraham builds an altar, lays the wood in order. And verse nine says he bound, he tied Isaac, his son. Now Abraham is 100, 120, 125, maybe 130 years old. Isaac, his son, is 20 to 30 years old. Do you believe that a 20 to 30 year old could take a 120 year old Man, sure he could. Could Isaac have resisted and fought and absolutely, could Isaac have taken the knife from his father and killed his dad in self-defense? Absolutely he could. But Isaac was completely submissive to his father's will. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus who owned that same mountain in that exact same place a thousand years later would pray in the garden of Gethsemane within view of the place where Isaac was climbing the hill Jesus knelt in Gethsemane great drops of blood pouring from his forehead and prayed let this cup pass from me except it be your will if this is your will then let it be done he was completely submissive to his father And then lastly, 
You see Isaac, or you see Jesus in the life of Isaac and the fact that in this moment as Abraham takes Isaac and they climb Mount Calvary, there was the hope of a resurrection. There was the assurance that there would be a resurrection. Now it didn't, it didn't assuage the grief of knowing that Isaac would soon die, but there was at least the hope that this would not be the end. How do we know there was hope of resurrection? Well, look at verse number five. Verse five says, and Abraham said to his Young servants, as young men, you abide here with the donkey. I and the lad will go up yonder and worship. And we will come again to you. Do you see that? What Abraham knew. He was fully committed. He was going to slay his son. God had told him to sacrifice him. He was going to do it. A burnt offering. Nothing would be left. Nothing would be left of Isaac. And he said, you stay here. We're going to go worship God, and we will come again. And Hebrews tells us, by the way, in Hebrews chapter 11, that Abraham was convinced that if God would take his son on that mountain, that he knew that he would raise him from the dead. Because he knew there would be a resurrection. He could follow through and be faithful, knowing that God would keep his word. In the same way, when Jesus went to the cross, he knew, even as he died, he knew, his father knew that this was not the end, that there would be a resurrection. See, what I want you to know this morning is that in Isaac, in this, in this origin of the Messiah, you see so many glimpses of Jesus who is to come, so many foreshadowings of Jesus who is to arrive. He would receive a bride. He would be sacrificed. He would be submissive to his father's will. He would carry the wood. He would be sacrificed, but then he would rise from the dead. All of this pictured in Isaac, fulfilled in Jesus. By the way, one last thing is simply to say that all of that was fulfilled in Isaac's experience when the angel said, stop, and he was for all purposes rescued from, raised from the dead off that altar in that moment, and the substitute lamb, the ram called in the thicket, died in his place. Here's the good news of, 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 uh, of Genesis 22. It is that God has made an unthinkable sacrifice in the giving of his son so that you and I might be saved. And his son rose from the dead so that we might be brought into an eternal relationship with him as the bride of Christ. Amen. So my question to you is, are you a part of that bride? Do you know Jesus? Have you come to the place where you've really believed that God offered his son for you? And that he died on the cross for your sins and then rose from the dead. And have you, like Rebecca said, I want him. I want, to, I, want to, I want to follow him. I want to be joined in union with him. You're being invited to that today. The Holy Spirit, just as surely as Eliezer was in Mesopotamia talking to Rebecca and her family, he's here today. And he's talking to your heart. Have you said yes to Jesus?